This is the Fearless Pricing Podcast, where we meet and talk real-life pricing experience. I'm your host, Filip Fucic. Pricing is hard. This is a podcast for fearless professionals and those who would like to feel that way. It's an unfortunate truth that most service pricing is created using either guesswork or copying other people's guesswork. Hello and welcome back to the Fearless Pricing Podcast. Today on the What I Should Have Charged, we have the illustrious uh, Klaus Rastet. I'm going to do an unusual way of, of telling you about him because I want to tell you how we got to write the book together, the pricing expertise, right? We met randomly through LinkedIn because he was publicly wondering something about uh, pricing a workshop and I offered advice and we talked about it. I talked about my many mistakes in pricing and how I one day I'm going to write a book about it. And he said, how about now? About 10-ish months later, the book came out, but here it is. It's very pink, pink and elephanty, and we're very happy with how it was perceived. So. Let's say that's e enough of an intro for now. Klaus, could you please tell your story? Yes. Thank you for the invitation, Philip. And thank you, listeners in Tokyo, Brazil, Cape Town, Paris, Berlin, London, whoever you are, wherever you are, we're happy to have you. This story takes place some years ago. I was doing a project, my first big project in the Middle East with my business partner at the College of Extraordinary Experiences, Paul Bulencha. And we were supposed to do a live action role play series of events at a water park in Abu Dhabi. The pitch was quite simple from our end. They had a water park, amazing water park, yes, water world. And by day, it's a water park, by night, Four security guards would patrol it every night. Nothing would ever happen because it's a safe place. And nobody would be there and no money would be made. So we said, what if we can bring in a revenue stream in the evening that is completely, uh, shall we say, detached from the daily operations, but makes use of the same facilities in a very different way. So completely different target audience, but money and fun. And that way, introduce live action role play. So we do an Arabian Legends live action role play experience in the water park because the water park has some quite nice scenery to go with their story about a pearl and magic and blah, blah, blah. So this was a big project and we were really excited about it. It was our first time working together. It was our first time doing a project in the Middle East. And we come down at some point to negotiations about money. What's it going to cost? How are we going to get paid? Is it a one-time thing? Does it have different stages? Is it one price? Is it dependent on contingencies? All the normal stuff. This is where it gets interesting. Because the hope is, when we're negotiating this, the hope is, the plan is, that we will run a number of events at that water park for a certain number of nights. We're going to go down with a 38-person team for a month. So we're going to run quite a lot of events, test events, and then some semi-open, soft opening events. And then we're going to have uh, most of the month where we're open for the public every evening, more or less. So we look at numbers. 
what will it cost to produce it? Do we need, we need costumes and we need team and we need hotels and we need food and there's promotion and who covers what costs all that shebang. I'm drawing this out because I'm leading up to the moment where it starts going wrong, <laughs> where it starts getting into the, uh, that was not smart. And sadly, I know exactly when that happened. And the good part is this story has not just one mistake. It has two, <laughs> two pricing mistakes. But one of them turned out to be irrelevant because the other was so bad that the first one just didn't matter. The first pricing mistake, the lead up, is we're talking about royalties. What if it all goes crazy and later and they develop it without us and all this sort of what if we get left behind? What if we're the creative that produces the magic and then it becomes operational and they don't need us anymore? And we're aiming for that. We're trying for that. That's our goal. We have a talk with them, which I will never forget. It's an online meeting, and for some odd reason, I'm out on a boat somewhere, so the sound is bad, and I tell them I'll just sail into a cove, and it sounds like it's a cave, so they think, what the hell is going on with this guy on a boat in a cave? Nobody really, nobody knows each other at this point, so it's a surreal meeting. And we're talking about royalties. And we say, well, we've looked at it and they want us to make an offer on what the royalties should be. And we've come out with that we think we think 10% would be fair, but we are open to anything in the 5 to 10% range to give some negotiating space, put our cards on the table and say 10 would be preferred. But if it is critical for you, we are willing to go down to 5 And some might say never put the discount on the table. Others would say, wow, that's a really nice strategy because you make it win-win instead of just win-lose. There are many opinions. And then being me, I put all the cards on the table. I say, we are looking at 10%, but 5 to 10 is our reasonable range. But if needed, if this is a critical deal breaker that will stop the project, we can actually also go down to zero and work in a different manner because we want this to happen. And then, and I've used this sort of tactic many times. It never backfires. Everybody's always, no, no, we have some money and we want to work for the betterment of all of us. And of course, you're being reasonable, so we'll be reasonable. Yes. So the guy at the other end says, okay, so zero, great, moving on. And we couldn't really backtrack from that. But I realized that that tactic of putting your trust in the person paying can work very well, but it does require a certain lack of transactional thinking. Because if the other person is thinking transactionally, they just got a better deal and everybody's happy. If the other person is thinking about the relationship, the purpose, the mission, the, the whatever together, then they'll try to do good by you. Which means that if you use this sort of strategy, do it with people where it's a relationship or where you're trying to build one, not people who just want the cheapest price and don't really care. Because then when you say you can choose between three prices, they'll say, I'll take the cheapest one. Thank you. Goodbye. And this time the cheapest one was zero. So that was the small mistake. And then afterwards, Paul said, Klaus, I love your Danish ways, but you're an idiot sometimes. And I said, yes, this is hard to argue against. This tactic backfired. Luckily for the both of us, this turned out to be completely irrelevant because we ended up 
with not only zero royalties, but also incredibly little money for our efforts because we made another mistake. And this was not only mine, but one we made. We were negotiating how much are they going to pay us? And we settled on a fixed amount that would cover our costs, production, flights, team, etc., but not much more. And then a reasonably high percentage of the ticket prices. I think we got like 47% of each sold ticket would end up in our pocket. But to get to that number, we had toned down the fixed cost. So there was like a pay us this amount, which was decent, 38-people team, 30 days in the Middle East. It was not zero money, let's put it that mm-hmm. way. And then instead of trying to get that number higher, we said we'd like as much of the ticket revenue as possible and we're willing to sacrifice from the kind of fixed pay to get that because we believed in the project. Insane potential. Well, that seemed like a good decision. And maybe it was a good decision, but it was not a good outcome because it turned out there were many things we had underestimated. And we thought if we just delivered like crazy, which we did, it would be great. Project, insane reviews. People are super happy. 9.4 out of 10 would go again, blah, 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 blah. But the whole marketing of it was done with a team that didn't even know what it was until quite late, didn't understand what we were selling. So of course they were selling it wrong and didn't end up fixing that until quite late in the process because they didn't know that they didn't know. And then we had practical hurdles. There's a whole bunch of things. But what it all ended up with was that we'd done the original math, which said we could sell 7,000 tickets during the course of this month if we fill every every night. Mm-hmm. So if we have a break-even of 2,000 tickets, like that's our like, wow, that looks good. If we get 2,000, then we're hitting the targets we have internally, and we will be happy. Then anything over 2,000 will just be sweet money. And if we're under 2,000, well, we still got our fixed cost covered. We learn some stuff, etc. And even if we only sell 1,000, we'll still be happy. And I mean, of 7,000 potential, and we believed in this, and our partners believed in this. So we sold 70 tickets. I, I would have guessed 200 by... by <laughs> 200 would have been nice. We sold <laughs> 70 tickets. We gave out a lot of free ones and ended up having a lot of participants who were happy. 1,500 or so over the month. But we sold 70 Amazing event, amazing feedback, but it completely failed there. And we, who were not delivering the marketing, who were not doing the sales, who were not in charge of the technical setup, which, oh, you can't pay with international credit cards. We figured that out by random, by meeting some English guys at our hotel, talking about the event. And then they said, let me pay. And they're like, oh, they couldn't. We tried with five different credit cards. And then we came to our partners and said, Oh, yeah, you can only pay online via local credit cards Aha! at a place mainly meant for tourists. So we had a lot of these snags along the way, which meant that when we finally fixed them at the end and started selling this meager amount of tickets, it was so late in the process that it didn't really go anywhere. But when we were calculating what to price this at, then we saw the stars and the rainbows of 7,000 sold tickets and 47% revenue for us. 
and thought, even if it's only 2,000, which seemed a ridiculously no number at the time, then we'll still be really happy. Even at 1,000, we'll be satisfied. And we based our pricing on things completely outside our control. And we ended up with a crazy potential and very little in the actual bank. Great project, great team, lovely experience. I'm glad we did it. Sounds but magical. It would have been nice <laughs> if we priced it based on things we actually delivered rather than things that were completely outside our control, but were higher numbers. If we hadn't gotten fixated on this, oh, but it could be big. Yeah. Yep. That was a mistake. It'll do that to you. Uh, thank you. That was enchanting. The <clears throat> Aladdin's Cave of Treasures came out as being full of beans, but hey, right? <laughs> Before we continue, I'd like to suggest two things. Firstly, if this is the first time you're tuning in, I'd love for you to subscribe and hear the next story in a week. And second, if you feel you could do with a little more fearless pricing content, look in the show notes for the link to the popular, short, and sometimes funny bi-weekly newsletter. That's it. Let's get back to the show. My first company was a prototype board game building company. And I absolutely understand the, the stars in your eyes calculations. We were a, a, a bunch of friends building something that we were good at. And we went for a, for a big show in Essen, Germany, and it worked really well. And we sold everything that, that, that we got there. And then we had another partner from Poland and we, everything was going great. Uh, except that it was very, very hard to work in a way that you get paid like six months after the work is done, maybe. Because you have to do all of the work, you have to pitch, and then um, you have to fork up initial production and then send it out and then wait until it's sold as it was. It, it may have been viable for one guy doing all of the things for, for eight people. No, I think you hit something there because luckily we were somewhat in that position. We were, we were balancing cash flow with when were they paying, et cetera. And when was our team getting paid? But I think you hit something there that there's so much work that gets done that could have been done by some people who have the passion and the, the skill and the drive to do it, but who can't because of the payment model, because while having deep pockets allows you to do that, most entrepreneurs have pockets the size of my shirt pockets, which are, oh, non-existent. <laughs> and that means that sort of, oh, do the work, you'll get paid six months later. It's great if you've got cash reserves. If you haven't, goodbye. Yeah, we were younger back then. And I think I can say we both felt bulletproof. I didn't feel bulletproof. I just really wanted to do the project. <laughs> I felt like I could do anything, right? If I can have a, a company like that and employ the people that, that, that I love to work with, everything is possible, right? I can do everything on my own sooner or later. I just have to, you know, grit my teeth. And yeah. And also, I really like what, how you talked about the transactional view on a client, um, because 
when you're not used to negotiating in a transactional way, you might fall into a trap uh, that says, I'm going to lay my cards on the table, expecting that the other person will do that too. And just, you know, cut the haggling. Just lay everything out because I, I don't want to be duplicious. I don't want to be sly. I don't want to be merchanty. I, I just want to work, right? I'll do a great job. You pay me as much as you can, and we're, we're going to work together. But the other side, they, they can be delicious and calculating. But also, sometimes they say whatever they said cannot be their final offer because that would be impolite. I mean, it's impolite to haggle, yes. But on the other hand, it's impolite to come with an offer that the other side can only say yes to, right? So if I hit you with a price and you can, uh, um, and there's no wiggle room, then that um, you, in a way, have to submit to what I've just offered, which is an impolite thing, right? So the first thing out of the gate is an ultimatum, really. That's also impolite. So people from from uh, those kinds of backgrounds, transactional ones, they don't want to embarrass you by presupposing that your initial offer is an ultimatum, right? Sometimes it's even a sign of respect. You wouldn't be that naive to do that to me. Or So whatever you said initially and however low you went, <laughs> um, that, not, that, that must not be it. Unfortunately, when these two things happen at the same time, you get a tragedy. Yes. <laughs> um, of good intentions and respect. Like I said, of course... Uh, the other side could just be transactional. I I don't care, but it can also be a sign of it respect. Definitely can. So it's my philosophy is to never come out with um, the the last thing that that you have to hold on to. Never put an ultimatum out. It's a harsh way of saying it, but that's an ultimatum. If they just can say yes or no, because I've been in. <laughs> I've been in situations where my higher-ups expected me to extract uh, a discount of some kind. I, I, I had a proper job, and we were doing um, some big stickers. I had a, a friend in college who inherited the big sticker business from, from his dad. We were buddies. He gave me a buddy price, which, because I knew my job, I knew it was a buddy price, right? So I present the offer to my finance boss and he says, did you get the discount without looking at it? And I said, no, it's a buddy of mine. I know it's a good price. No, come on. You, uh, you know, he didn't say it in so many words, but I'm not paying you to just, to just say yes to, to an offer and get a discount. So I, of course I called my buddy. I said, listen, the, the guy didn't look at this. Just send me the same price inflate it and then give me a 30% discount, right? So so I presented the same thing to the boss and he said, see, I told you, you, you can do it. Yeah, 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 you're great, you're great. <laughs> in, I've been in that situation, right? I lose if I just say yes to, to the first price that, that, that you said. So just in case, because you cannot know this for sure, unless you know the person, as you said, 
right? If, if there's a, a relationship going on through the years and stuff, you can always choose to, to be magnanimous. You can always say, you know what? This has gone so well. I think I can do it. I just remembered I can do it for, for 10% off. You can always choose to do that if you if everything is going swimmingly and you that cannot be said in the other direction as <laughs> as you know because once you go uh, low there's no way that you can, I, I just remember i can't make it you will, you'll have to p uh, pay more because that breaks the the relationship then and there right and of course you mentioned discounts my experience is that any discounts offered as as discounts without being asked for are not really seen as discounts. They're seen as price insecurity, which to be fair, Klaus, it kind of was. Oh, this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. But the funny part is, and, and I'll, I'll leap onto that one, is mm -hmm. I do my pricing rather unusually today. Mm-hmm. And that means when somebody contacts me for a speaking gig, which I do a lot of, and they ask for the price and I'll tell them, I do work for a lot of clients in a lot of different situations, which means it's at a lot of different prices, the most expensive. And then I give them the top of that range, which is indeed rather expensive for a lot of people in the two five figure euros. So a lot of people that is rather expensive to some it's like oh <laughs> we thought this way it was good and he's cheap <laughs> but to most people that's that's decent money and then i say i also do things cheaper because sometimes people have budgets and they can't make that work and i even do it for free if there's no money so here's the deal you tell me what you have and we'll do it for that and if you say eight thousand we'll do it for eight thousand i'll smile and if you say three, we'll do it for three and I'll smile. If you say 14, I'll do it for 14 and I'll smile. But the only requirement I have is if you don't have any money, then at least you buy me a good dinner. And they always laugh. And then they say, oh, that's really nice to hear. And they either say, some of the time they say, that's really nice to hear because we have no budget. But of course, we'll buy you a nice dinner and pay flights and hotels, etc. And really nice to work with you. And that happens. But most of them say, oh, that's so nice to hear. Our budget is 6000 or our budget is 12000 or our budget is whatever it is. And suddenly, the trust level has just gone from here to here. Yeah. Because I've taken one of the most important things in building a new professional relationship is whose money goes where, how much, and are we happy with it? Oh, that's nice of you. Okay, we'll treat it gently. And this is if I feel people are not trying to rip me off. Yeah. The moment I feel they're going like the 0% guy from that conversation, who we don't know, he might just have been respectful. I think not, but he might have been. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that. No, no, but hopefully he was. Hopefully, it's always good to have a, what could have made this okay? And maybe he was being respectful. Let's let's look at the past that way. Okay. But the moment I feel people are trying to rip me off for taking advantage of me, then I don't do it that way. Then I give them a price that's a walk away price. Because if it's to me, there are two kinds of pricing negotiations. There's the one where you're building a relationship, 
and there's the one where it's a transaction. And I'm always building relationships, except when somebody decides to tell me this is just a transaction for them. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Then it's also just a transaction for me. Here's what I'd be comfortable with. You take it or you leave it. But the moment it's building a relationship, which is my default, then it's about the trust and it's about giving power to each other. Because it turns out the trust is very hard to outsource to AI. It's very (laughs) hard to be undercut on trust. You can be undercut on price. You can be outmaneuvered on quality, on speed, on all sorts of things. But trust That's tricky. Once you have somebody's trust, they're not going to immediately go to somebody else who's cheaper unless they have trust there as well. And I find that building trust requires, and this is not I find, this is just how it is. (laughs) Trust requires to trust first. If I go to somebody and say, hey, Philip, just met you. You seem nice. Can you lend me 10,000 euros? You're probably going to say, what? I say, I'm a trustworthy guy. You should trust me. You're going to say, yes, but I don't yet. (laughs) Where if you talk about how you're in a problematic place and I say, hey, Phil, we've just met each other. I've got 10,000 I can lend you. Just pay me back in three months. One is you're going to be thankful because who the hell does that? Two, when you give me that money back and I six months later come and said, Phil, uh, I'm in the bad position now. You, You got a little money you can lend? You're going to say, of course, without blinking. Because I trusted first. Yeah. If you want to build trust, there's only one way that works. If you are doing it. If you can't tap into somebody else's trust, oh, this is my brother, or oh, we come from Disney, or if you don't have the trust of others you can tap into, or you can kind of put on your as your own hat, institutional trust, interrelational trust. If you have to build your own trust, there's only one way, and that's by trusting first. And I do that in pricing, and I'm not yes. sure it works everywhere, but it works somewhere. <clears throat> I can see that building each other and and transactional. Um, I think we spoke about it once. It, it's um, uh, growth work or sustaining work in, in in my vocabulary, right? It's always nice to do growth work, and sustaining work is you know, y- yeah. I, I know how to do that. You obviously need it. Let's do the transaction. The only thing what you get out of sustaining work is money. While with growth work, you get the relationship, you get trust, you get experiences, you get new opportunities, stepping stones, all sorts of things. Now, um, I wouldn't like to send the message that sustaining work is something that, that you have to strive to avoid. It's just a different beast to, to price because who knows what you're going to get out of growth work. But for, from, a, from a transactional uh, sustaining, you know what you're going to get. I know that we are co-writers, so we should agree on everything. We really don't. Theoretically. But I'm going to flip that and say, if there's one thing that I've found out with doing more and more expert work and less and less commodity work, Mm-hmm. It is that I never know what is sustaining work and what is growth work. Because a random LinkedIn conversation, the random guy 
<laughs> and saying, why don't I help you make that book dream come alive? Let's do it together. And that guy saying, you know what? Let's do that together and make it come alive. If I'd been looking at it as possible sustaining work, who's this weird guy from Croatia? Yes, I could charge him to be his book coach. Yes, I could do all that. Then A, we'd probably not have a book. And B, how the hell do I know where this is going to take us in three years? This is just us. And, and I have a ton of these, and I'm not going to waste our time here with a ton of crazy stories. But the random factor, the chaos factor, I have seen that in my professional life, the higher I got in, in kind of grades and money and, and where I'm going, the more the chaos factor has played in. Because that guy you just met somewhere who's obviously just sustaining work, like he's asking you if he can buy a cigarette from you while you're standing at the deck of the cruise ship in the Mediterranean. And he'd like to give you a euro for your cigarette. And you give him, you take the euro, you give the cigarette, it's over. Or you give him the cigarette and say, you know what? If you've got a minute, I'll give you a cigarette, but I'll trade it for a story. But come here and tell me something interesting. Then that guy goes back to his cabin. It turns out his wife is the CEO of an Italian company that produces furniture. And she, at her next board meeting, talks to her sales representative in Britain who has a cousin that turns out they like the story about the Viking dude with the cigarette and the story who ends up calling and, and offers you a speaking gig. And I've not done the cigarette thing, but some of my stories are just as convoluted and weird before going from random action to money appearing. So I agree, sustaining work, complete agreement on it. I've just realized that I do not have the capacity to judge when something's sustaining work so I treat everything as growth work until the others come out and say, you're getting money and that's it. And you're not getting a lot of money. And then I say, aha, that's why you need to pay. Um, thank you. I can see that with random people. And, and as you said, sometimes you have to decide to price something in such a way because your bills need to be paid. Yes. And like I said, you can always later on decide to be magnanimous. But most people <clears throat> that I talk to can't afford to give everybody the, the benefit of the doubt. Neither can I, to be fair. Neither can I. I mean, neither can I. But And I understand. And I also love it when I do stuff where the price is clear. Mm -hmm. I sometimes run events. I sometimes sell books, or sometimes do other things where there's a very clear, here's the price, you can take it or leave it. But what I find is that when you're doing your own thing, a workshop or a web seminar, or maybe you're doing a book, or maybe it's a board game, or maybe it's a retreat in the Andes, then you put a price and people can choose do they want it or not. But when you're working with clients, I find that approach, as you say, the ultimatum approach is rarely good. And then how far down you end on the Klaus crazy scale of here's the heart thing, of course, depends on where you are and who you're dealing with. And let's just say there are places in the world I wouldn't do it as much as <laughs> and industries and so on.
and it depends on what you're selling. But when we talk about pricing expertise in environments where trust goes around and word of mouth is critical, then I'd lean more on the make it a shared problem. And when you are in places where nobody cares and it's, it's transactional, I want the orange. I don't care about the supermarket. I just want the bloody orange. Then ultimatum pricing. I agree with that. As your pricing evolves, but you basically said that, right? In some uh, ways, not at all. In some ways, I did this 15 years ago. And that's when I had my breakthrough finding out that when you work with, and here, here comes the thing. Mm-hmm. One of the things I talk a lot about in my pricing work, and, and I'm sure you say the same, but maybe with different names, is the difference between sophisticated clients and unsophisticated clients. And we're not talking about whether they enjoy a bit of rosé in the evening and, and can quote Shakespeare in the original Latin. That's not what we're talking about. Shakespeare is not in Latin, just so sophisticated. So I'm talking about do they know the market? Do they understand what you're doing? Do they know the value? If I go down and buy oranges in a supermarket, I am a sophisticated customer because I know roughly what should they cost? What do I look for? What do I judge by? Sure, I don't know everything. I'm not an expert, but I do know that uh, oranges at two euros a kilo is reasonable. Oranges at one is very cheap. Oranges at five is, whoa, that's luxury oranges. Oranges at 50, that's either somebody trying to disrupt the market or just mad. Where when I'm buying a translation into professional Korean, I have no idea. I'm an unsophisticated client. And that means I have no clue as to what the actual price is, the actual value is. I can't judge it. I have all sorts of substitute judgments. And I only look at how are they presenting and what does my own budget say, all these sorts of things. And I find that for what I do, I have many unsophisticated clients. So they don't know what it should cost. What is a weird Viking innovator, overpaid rock star consultant cost? Should they pay 5,000? Should they pay 50? Are they getting it cheap at 31? They have no idea, which means that I can't use that mm-hmm. to argue. If I'm telling somebody you're getting this Ferrari cheaply at 200,000 euros and they're used to cars that cost 100 euros, then they don't understand it's cheap, even if I do. And it doesn't matter what I know. Absolutely. There's uh, another level to it. So I know a translator, actually who prefers clients who have already been burned by cheap translation. That makes them more sophisticated. Yes, yes. So I usually call them veterans as opposed to rookies. So so somebody first time buyer motivational speech or a, a workshop is an unsophisticated buyer or rookie because firstly, they don't know what they don't know. So they don't see a fraction of the value. And also they can't really tell an amateur from a professional because they've never been burned by an amateur. And in expert in fields of expertise, there's simply a big difference between um, a workshop and a workshop. There's a bigger difference between those than a car wash and a car wash, right? You can, you can get good service and bad service in any sector, but you know, having a good surgery and a bad surgery is a very, very big difference, <laughs> right? 
a workshop may be may seem less serious, but it's usually not. It just doesn't have so many visual clues that something went horribly wrong, right? Because of these big differences, it matters more who does the, the, the service. Somebody should write a book on that. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. What page are we quoting right now? But yes, I, of course, I of course agree. <clears throat> I, I, I think about eight-ish. Yeah, I know. We, we also had a handy illustration for this. We had an, a handy illustration for everything. There's 40 illustrations. It's basically a children's book. Within the weird field of pricing expertise that, that we wrote the book on. Because things work completely differently when you're a decently sized company. And the other day I was thinking uh, about defensible prices. So how do you set the price so that you don't have to immediately change it because a client says, yeah, but I can get that for 50% less. In a conventional field for a conventional com uh, company, this would mean lawyers right? You have some rights that you can defend in courts. It would be an amazing brand that, that, you, uh, that will just elevate you um, or something like that. None of these things are open to us. We have brands, but they're not known by everybody and, and, and they shouldn't be known by everybody. They're not for everybody, right? Usually, the other side's lawyers vastly outnumber our own staff, which is usually just us. So those are not the routes that, that to achieve something like that. If everybody understands that you're an authority on this, then they're not going to say, yeah, but there's a, the kid on the next block that, that will do it practically for free. <laughs> and this is why I think it's, it's important to talk about the rules within the fields of expertise. And I think if we're going to take that brilliant truth and add on a, a plus one for all of our listeners out there who may think, okay, but how do I do that? So there are many ways of doing that, but one of the ones that I find super effective and that I often counsel people to do, you're a brilliant example of that yourself, Phil, is narrow down what you're doing. Because oh, yeah. if you go out and say, I'm Klaus, I sell business, not the biggest authority in the world on that. If I say, I help French companies with business, it gets a little better. If I help French startups who've gotten VC funding and are looking to expand into the Chinese market, now suddenly I don't need a lot of authority to be, I need it on that exactly. And if somebody creates a company that says, we are a company that serves to provide life advice for Klaus Wastel, that's me, I would at least check out their website. <laughs> Even if I'd never heard of them, I'd say like, okay, these guys are my guys. They're working for me. And of course, rarely is it the case that you can build a company on serving one individual. But if you're serving a group, you're saying your translator friend, I serve clients who've already been burned. I do translation, not just clients, translation for clients who've already been burned by cheap translators. That is brilliant because it means 99.9% .9 of the globe doesn't care, couldn't care less. But of those who do, that's me. Yeah, That is me as a client 
and I know this guy and he understands my problem because yes, I've been there. I want that. It sounds counterintuitive as many of the things that we wrote about do because, you know, wouldn't you like to have a, a larger market? But I usually say, if I now offered you an amazing deal on a little brown bottle with some smelling liquid that cures all ills from cold to cancer, would you be eager to buy it? Probably not. You know, it has maximum target market. Everybody could use this. Yes, and nobody will. So if you wouldn't, uh, um, I, I think the, the old alchemists called it panacea, right? If you wouldn't buy a panacea, why would you try to sell it? Right? <laughs> Klaus, uh, thank you very much for this conversation. Tell me, wh where can people find you and your work? There's only one of me for better and worse. And that means a Google search for my name will lead you down a rabbit hole of epic proportions, stretching into all sorts of different weird fields, whether it's relationship advice or ruby hunting in Greenland or something that actually has to do with pricing. Google my name, you'll find me. Whether you want to keep looking after that's completely up to you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody. This was a very welcome change of pace. And see you next time on What I Should Have Charged.